am I going to do? I've watched it so many times and I keep having the same feeling. I think... I think I kind of like Spider-Man 3. But I feel like no one in the world feels the way I do. I just wish I had someone to talk to. What, what, what was that? Is someone there? Remember that part where there's that cool Sandman fight in the subway? So underrated. How about that time Peter dances down the street in his new black suit? So misunderstood! What about when Harry and Peter team up to fight Venom and save Mary Jane? So good. I kinda like Spider-Man 3. I want to talk about it too, Scott. That's why I've been looking for you. Looking? For, for me? Oh yeah. I know all about you. You do? Like what? Like the fact that we've recorded 245 podcasts covering every minute of Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, so if we stop now, it just doesn't seem right to me. Wait, that you, Zach? Look, I want to talk about Spider-Man 3. You want to talk about Spider-Man 3. Together, its bad reputation doesn't stand a chance. Interested? Yeah. But where can people find us? Oh, my spider sense is tingling, if you know what I mean. And it's telling me that they should look for Spider-Man Minute Season 3 on DuelingGenre.com or wherever they get their podcasts this summer. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I am joined by Jim O'Kane to discuss Cliff Secord and Jenny Blake from the film The Rocketeer. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I, I appreciate being on the show very much, uh, talking about one of my favorite characters in all moviedom. And, now, uh, Jim, unfortunately, I, I, but... oh, I was going to say, I thought it was very important to have you on as the guest for this episode of of the Rocketeer. And maybe you could share with our listeners one of the ways that your fandom of this film has been expressed. Well, I've, I've seen this. I saw this movie originally when it was in theaters and I loved it. I've, I've worked in aviation for decades and it is such a pilot movie. It's such a engineering movie. It's very exciting. And, uh, you know, it's just good rousing adventure. And uh, then, you know, decades went by and, uh, all of a sudden podcasting came up and I thought, well, I, I'd like to do a couple of movies. And one of them that I had on my list was Do the Rocketeer. Um, through a, a mutual friend, a friend, I met my co-host, Hal Bryan, who's uh, head of social media for the uh, a, uh, Experimental Aviation uh, Association in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, who he knows everything there is to know about air, airplanes. And so he was a perfect, perfect uh, co-host for the show. And we started doing the Thing, just talking about our love for the movie and our love for yeah, all this things. show was uh it was a movies by minute format right that's correct yeah that's correct we we did it one minute at a time for every or, or we did one minute of the movie per episode episodes last about a half an hour it's still out there at rocketeer minute if you'd like to catch it rocketeerminute.com um so we we started recording them and we were just babbling on about how much we love this film and about four episodes in uh at maybe two in the morning i get a tweet that says, I'm sitting here eating oatmeal and listening to your show. I love it. This is uh, one of my favorite films. Signed, Billy Campbell, the Rocketeer himself. <laughs> so I started doing a rain dance in the middle of my uh, 
bedroom, my wife was very upset at two in the morning seeing me jumping around going, look, 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 like I'm holding a phone up to her in the dark. <laughs> um, and so I reached back out to him and he's like, yeah, I would love to be on the show. So uh, sure enough, we uh, we got, got in touch with Billy and he was on for uh, almost 40 episodes and uh, more to come too. Is, uh, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, he's been a really great friend and uh, he's everything you'd want to, the rocketeer to be in real life. He's just a great <laughs> fellow. Yeah, that's a great story. You, uh, you, I know the Rocketeer Minute got plugged into the the creative side of the film a lot more than many of the other Movie by Minute podcasts, where it's often, uh, you know, academics who are talking about things or or um, you know musicians who are applying their their understanding to the film and talking about that sort of thing. But you you were able to find some of the the uh, the actual people who had worked on the Rocketeer and, like you said, the Rocketeer himself uh, to get involved with it. Yeah, it was it was really fun. I mean, we talked with you know the star himself. We talked with uh, other uh, supporting characters like uh, we had a wonderful time talking with Melora Hardin, who uh, most people know from The Office. Uh, but she was uh, the South Seas Club singer, and she came on and talked about being in the show. She was only, I think, she was nineteen when she was in the movie, and she just talked about how wonderful it was to get into a big, you know, slinky uh, satin dress and and belt out a bunch of old uh, '30s tunes. And, uh, you know, everything from her to uh, the guy that we call Mr. Ketchup Bottle. He's a guy that was in a fight scene. Um, we, we caught up with him and, and he chatted about what it's like to get punched in the face by uh, Billy Campbell. <laughs> so, a lot, lot of fun. It was, it was just a great time. And everything that you'd want, uh, we described it as the director's commentary that didn't come with the movie. It was just had everything you'd ever want to know about the movie buried in our show. Well, and, and many hours more than you could possibly get into a director's commentary. True. Yeah, it would have to be a 59-hour movie. So <laughs> we, we managed to squeeze some in. Yes. All right. Well, for any listeners who don't remember, The Rocketeer is a 1991 film that had a screenplay by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. It was directed by Joe Johnston and starred uh, Billy Campbell as Cliff Secord and Jennifer Connelly as Jenny Blake. It tells the story of a man in 1938 who finds a jetpack and then finds himself fighting Nazis as everyone would, I think, in that situation. Uh, it also starred Alan Arkin as PV, Paul Sorvino as Eddie Valentine, Terry O'Quinn as Howard, Howard Hughes, and Timothy Dalton as Neville Sinclair. Now, I'm going to guess that, Jim, in doing 50-plus hours of talking about The Rocketeer, you've come across some trivia. We, we, have, we have an awful lot of trivia. A lot of it yeah. is behind the scenes. There's even stuff that I'm... <laughs> I've been sworn by Billy not to tell ever again, but uh, we had a we had a great time talking with him about all the all the behind the scenes stuff. Um, one one thing that he did reveal, if uh, if you do watch the the movie in the opening minutes when he gets into uh, the big yellow GB plane, which is just a, a giant propeller with stubby wings on it, it's it's built for speed, and uh, he gets into the plane and. They're about to screw down the, the cockpit cover on him. And he says, let's make some history. Well, at, the, at the time, this was one of the first days of shooting. And the night before, the entire cast had been having a really heavy uh, drinking party at the hotel in Santa Maria, California. And he was extremely hungover when he made that, <laughs> when he made that shot. And they are just, you know, spinning the, spinning the propellers and banging him around. And he's just not having a good day. He said his teeth hurt. His, he said his hair hurt, I think was the way he described it. 
<laughs> and then they're hammering in because because they're actually like popping in the the yeah. you know the cover over him and everything. So there's all this banging going on right around his head. <laughs> yeah, and his if you, if you look at him in that scene, his eyes just look like two stewed tomatoes, and he just, <laughs> it, it has a whole new um, relevance to me now. <laughs> Watching the, the misery of Billy Campbell on his first day on the job. Well, we're going to cover some trivia for The Rocketeer here, but uh, much more can be found over on The Rocketeer Minute podcast. If this is a film that you enjoy, I definitely recommend that. So the character of The Rocketeer was created by Dave Stevens for a 1982 comic book published by Pacific Comics. The comic book is very much an homage to the storytelling style of 1930s film serials. And uh, Stevens produced several issues in the 1980s, but the character was largely dormant in comic books until 2011 when IDW began publishing miniseries from new creators. Uh, the film's production history is a bit crazy. So Bilson and DeMeo were hired, fired and rehired three times in a five-year period as writers on the film, which I can't imagine that kind of pulling back and forth. Um, Michael Eisner, who was um, uh, high up in, at Disney, uh, he reportedly wanted to dump the fantastic Art Deco helmet. I love the helmet and the design of this character. He wanted to dump that for a NASA astronaut helmet I saw. But fortunately, Joe Johnston, who has the eye for design <laughs> like Joe, if, if you have joe johnston you let him design everything i think visually and he insisted that we keep the you know the, that they keep the art deco helmet and i'm very glad that his voice was heard there yeah um, he, he, he was he was amazing i mean he, how do you say no to the guy that designed the millennium falcon <laughs> he was yeah. he was he was the man that uh you know that described what yoda was going to look like for empire strikes back i mean this if you're going to trust somebody trust joe johnson when it comes to design Yes. Uh, and casting had a who's who of 1980s and early 90s leading men that were considered for the role of the Rocketeer. This included Kevin Costner, Matthew Modine, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Bill Paxton, Emilio Estevez, and Johnny Depp. And eventually Billy Campbell, who was most well known for television roles on Dynasty and Crime Story at that point, he got the part as the lead in the Rocketeer. Yeah, he was he was only about a day or two. Uh, Johnny Depp was originally uh, picked for the for the role at that point. They were they they thought he was a shoe in, and Depp said that he really didn't think the the role was what he he couldn't bring to the role what he thought the role needed. And Billy Campbell had had met a couple of times on auditions and heard that Johnny Depp was up for it and that he was going to get the part. And then once he found out that Depp had turned down the role, he went and met Depp at his agent's office. Um, I think they both had the same agent and he met with Johnny Depp. The way Billy described it was Depp is kind of a, a, a not a little fellow, but he's, he's not very tall. And so um, <laughs> Billy, who is like six foot three or six foot four, he came in, he picked, he picked Johnny Depp up and spun him around the room the way that Billy described it was like a puppy dog and just spun him around the room and put him down and thanked him profusely for letting him have this starring role, his, you know, Billy Campbell's first role in a feature film. Yeah, I mean, Depp is definitely more known for the the kind of quirky, uh, adding adding lots of weird twists to it, and uh, the role that you see for the Rocketeer, you need that kind of square jawed matinee idol, and Billy Campbell definitely brings that to it. Definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah the film. And, uh, uh, oh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, what I was going to say was one of the one of the things was that Billy Campbell had really he really wanted this role, but at the time that he was doing this, uh, he had worked at a Renaissance fair. In uh, I think it was in Santa Anita, California, and he was working in Ren Fair and basically had um, shoulder length hair tied up in a bun, and uh, he thought that this isn't really going to play in a 1930s uh, you know, movie serial type film. <laughs> so he took a he took a copy of a comic book uh, that you know of, of, of Dave Stevens drawing and uh, brought it to a barbershop and said, 
cut my hair like this. And sure enough, the, the, the barber cut his hair just like, uh, just like he looked in the, uh, in the comic book. And he credits, and Joe Johnson told him as well, and confirmed it, that uh, that haircut is what made, made him get the role. So a <laughs> bit of a surprise. Well, uh, I guess and it, you never know what is going to be one of those turning points. And I guess that haircut was one of his turning points. True. So The Rocketeer was considered a bit of a box office disappointment when it was released. It earned $46 million in the U.S. box office, but it's one of those films that has had a very long life through cable and home video, uh, so much so that more than maybe films that earned more at uh, you know at the box office around the same time, people remember it, and there have been rumors of Disney exploring a, a sequel um, for, for years. In 2016, there was an official announcement that they were prepping a sequel set six years after this film uh, that would be called The Rocketeers and it would feature an African-American female pilot. But there hasn't been much official word since that announcement. Like, I don't know how how much of that is is still still rolling forward. I, Disney has acquired a lot of properties in recent years, so they may have uh, picked up some other some other films. I don't know. I, I would love to see more more Rocketeer films. I think it's a it's a very fun world that that has not been explored fully in film adaptations. And and it's such a great property. I mean, it, it has so many opportunities there that you could you can aim it for any uh, any any audience really. I mean, I know that in the we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but they, they're looking more at uh, kids or even pre preschool version of the show. So yeah, for Disney Junior. Yeah, um, and it's it's actually going to start airing this fall of 2019. Is when we're recording this episode. If you're picking up this episode later, um, but the, yeah, Disney Junior has announced that they're going to have a series called The Rocketeer about Kit Secourt, a young girl who received who receives a package that reveals she's been chosen to become the next Rocketeer. Um, yes, and and one, one of the characters in it is a fellow named Uncle Ambrose, and uh, unwritten, not mentioned in the movie, but in the script that uh, Peavy's first name is Ambrose. So it looks like Peavy will show up in uh, or some version of PV may show up mm-hmm. in this in this show. Oh, okay. So the Rocketeer um, has 63%. Before yeah. you before you continue, I'm ju- I'm jumping in cuz I think I'll jump in a lot cuz I really like this movie. Um, but I also want to throw out like the influence of this film is felt pretty strongly. Um, I I consume a lot of media about behind the scenes stuff at Disney and so many of the people who work at Disney have a passion for this film. And it's one of the things that constantly gets brought up in interviews with people who work on the parks. Like, well, if I could do something, I'd do a Rocketeer ride. And so there's a lot yeah. of goodwill towards this movie um, in people who aren't necessarily making the decisions um, at, <laughs> right. at Disney. Danny Bil- we had Danny Bilson on our show, and he mentioned that when he goes to the parks, he's treated, in his quote, like a god, because when people find out, hey, you wrote the Rocketeer, uh, and uh, Imagineers and, and other people in the Disney organization are always calling him saying, love your show, wish we could do another one. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, the interest is out there from the inside, so hopefully it'll, it'll turn into something uh, productive. Well, and, and in the parks, yeah, this and- is sort of the like, retro-futuristic world that Tomorrowland – aspires to to be you know you kind of have this art deco futurism element and and that's kind of the rocketeer and you'll hear rocketeer music at the parks and and boy is it good music to to hear in the parks that that james horner theme is astonishing Mm -hmm. and it's it's so it's sweeping it's epic and really timeless i mean you could you could drop that in a current film and it's so 
memorable. And I, I know I, I've had pilots tell me that they have that playing in their headphones when they're taking <laughs> off in planes. <laughs> and yeah, so I just wanted to point out that, you know, in kind of behind the scene things and, and amongst like Disney fans and people who talk about Disney a lot, this film gets a much greater respect than it seems to get from the studio itself. Yeah. And I, I think I, I understand why, like the, there's so much about the design elements and like, just like the feel, the feelings that the film evokes successfully. That's like what Disney should be going for a lot of the time. Like that's like, it, it lines up with the Disney brand so well that I'm surprised it hasn't become a larger franchise for them. Uh, for any first time listeners, that was producer Andrew jumping in. Uh, and we always welcome his input. Uh, somehow the film only has a 63% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And that feels low to me. Like I understand it not being at a hundred percent, but 63 seems, seems on the low end for, for my memory of the film, both like when it came, when it came out, like I remember, or, or it was probably like by the time it was on home videos when I finally saw it, but I remember really, really liking it then and revisiting it for this uh, episode of the podcast. I was like, Oh, this, this is just a solid film. Yeah, what, what um, really what really crushed it when it first came out was it was up against um, Terminator Two, which came out the following week, and uh, it had just it, it, the previous week uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves came out, so it was a really bad summer for it to appear. Maybe if it had come out in the around Christmas time, it would have done better, but it just really it, it wasn't its own it wasn't its own fault. It's just the competition that was there was probably better marketed and uh, also. Uh, more familiar people. I mean, there were, were really were no really big names that people knew of, um, other than Paul Servino, and he wasn't listed in the in the credits. Well, and Timothy Dalton, but he's not your leading man in this one. <laughs> he's... True, yeah, and and they they actually did a, a big misstep. I mean, it's it's beautiful, but the uh, the style A of this uh, the poster art for this thing is is a gorgeous uh, Art Deco uh, picture of the Rocketeer taking off in a very stylized view. But the problem is, it doesn't tell you what the movie's about, who's in it, where, you know, why should I want to see this movie? The second uh, poster came out and it had a picture of Billy Campbell front and center holding onto his Rocketeer helmet. And directly underneath him is a picture of Timothy Dalton in a ball of fire. So uh, you go, oh, look, James Bond is in this film. But th that didn't come out for several weeks after the movie had been uh, out in, in wide release. So it was, it was already stale. Mm. Um, so that probably the marketing is what is what killed it more than anything else. Um, yeah, and that's, that's unfortunate. Um, though, uh, Andrew was mentioning like there's for creators, there's a lot of love for this and, um, Joe Johnson's success with the period nature of this film has been cited as one of the reasons that Marvel looked at him to direct the Captain America, the first Avenger, the, you know, the first Captain America movie set in world war two. I'm sure he, I mean, Joe Johnson has a fabulous career. So there are many other reasons Marvel would have wanted him to come and direct uh, a film. But one reason specifically they looked at him for Captain America was the, that he had um, successfully, uh, you know, played in the same time period that Captain America was going to be set in. Yeah. B Billy himself, when we were talking with him, he, he considers that Captain America looks like he imagined uh, Rocketeer 2.0 would look. So it's, <laughs> it, it's a shame that, you know, we're not, we're not seeing Cliff Secord, but, I think they're doing okay with the, with the Marvel series. And, and really, I think uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, set the tone for all the future uh, iterations of Captain America. I think it set up who he was and how, you know, how he came to be. It was, it was one of the best origin stories of the MCU, in my opinion. I agree with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, Marvel, obviously, they've, they're one of the dominant forces in, in Hollywood blockbusters right now. But uh, I often see the, the Captain America, the first Avenger listed as, uh, you know, in people's favorites 
um, for, for the Marvel films. Yeah. And one of the things we have to think about with, uh, with these movies, I mean, both Marvel and, uh, and with cap with, um, with, I was going to say Captain Rocketeer, but the Rocketeer <laughs> is that they have to fit the Disney mold. They have to be, uh, shaped to, uh, fill, fulfill, uh, the, the audience that Disney is trying to, uh, cajole into the theaters. And there were significant changes made to, to, um, Dave Stevens' original concept of the Rocketeer. If you, if you look at the graphic novel, it's rather, um, it's it's written for grown-ups. It's not written for kids. Uh, Cliff's girlfriend isn't uh, Jenny, but is uh, actually Betty Page, the '40s uh, cheesecake model, uh, who spends a lot of the time in the uh, <laughs> a lot of the time in the in the comic in various states of undress. So uh, instead, they they turned uh, they turned Betty Page into uh, Jenny Blake, who was a an up and coming starlet who was trying to get a role where she wasn't just an extra in the background. Uh, so she was a little bit more. Uh, Wholesome, I think, would be the best the best word of that. Uh, yeah. The second second major thing that they changed was the inventor of the X three in the comic book was uh, Doc Savage, the pulp uh, the pulp novel hero. And although Doc Savage is a great you know scientist adventurer in the in the realm of uh, Indiana Jones, uh, he is a copyrighted character of a company that is not yet owned by Disney, so they, <laughs> they couldn't. <laughs> They give, it do, give it yeah, some time. Give it some time. Any moment now. Uh, but Doc Savage, uh, Doc Savage was deleted, and they changed it to uh, Howard Hughes, who is uh, he's he was a public figure, and better yet, he's dead. So they could uh, they could put him in as anything they wanted. So uh, that was uh, that was the major the major change to it. Uh, smaller changes too with uh, with PV. It was kind of unexpected. Uh, PV, the engineer who helps uh, Cliff figure out how the uh, rocket pack works, was originally thought of as more of a scrappy little fellow like uh, Joe Pesci. He would have a rapid banter style, um, kind of talking like Jimmy Cagney kind of a thing. But uh, when they hired somebody, they decided to choose, uh, or uh, Joe Johnson picked Alan Arkin. He enjoyed Alan Arkin's uh, style. And when uh, Arkin picked up the script, he started reading very slowly when he talked. And this uh, more laconic nature uh, changed the whole mood or the emotional level of uh, between PV and Cliff, it was more avuncular, some more of a mentor, more of an Obi Wan type than a uh, a buddy. Uh, quite an interesting, interesting scene to see to see how how much that was. And uh, when we were talking with uh, Billy Campbell, he he thought that that uh, Arkin was going to go more peppy, but when he didn't, he worked off of that, and the two of them found found an interesting relationship in the in the movie that wasn't in the script. So it was a fascinating development while, you know, in, while in production. Yeah. You know, just uh, what, what happens when, when you actually have actors reading these lines, you're, you're going to get something different than what the screenwriter had in their head or the director had in their head, or even one actor had in their head, you know, as they're, as they're playing off another. So that's interesting to uh, see that, you know, because of your experience on the rock to your minute, you have that insight into, you know, some very real changes that happened almost, you know, as filming. Yeah, it, it was fun finding out that it, the movie was more than the sum of its parts. I mean, it really, it, it has a certain cohesion to it that you don't see in many movies. And uh, meeting the people that are not meeting, but at least talking with the, the people who made the film, who are responsible for what we see on the screen, was uh, really exciting. And, and finding out that uh, that they did, they did not know themselves how popular the movie is. Billy Campbell is it's still shocked to this day when people come up and start asking him about Cliff Secord. Uh, just uh, amazing. 
Um, one other last bit of trivia, uh, Timothy Dalton's character, Neville Sinclair, is very much modeled on kind of an Errol Flynn, uh, and he's secretly a Nazi. And I wanted to note, in the 1980, I think it was 1980 was the year, there was a, a biography of Errol Flynn that was published in which the biographer argued that Errol Flynn had been a Nazi spy. Now, he has said, I don't have any hard proof of this, but the constellation of Errol Flynn's life leads me to believe he was a Nazi spy. And the biographer and the publisher were sued by Errol Flynn's family, and it got tossed out of court only because they said a dead man can't be libeled. Like, that's that's the yeah. technicality on which this is getting thrown out of court. But for years, and even now, I still, like, if you Google it, you'll see people referencing Oh, Errol Flynn was a Nazi. Uh, and, and that rumor seems to have become part of Timothy Dalton's characters. <laughs> um, you know, like, like they overlaid those two things, you know. That, yeah, that, it, uh, it, it, he has that certain amount of smarminess and uh, just little, and, and he did so many little things that, um, from what I understand, it just the add-ons, there's, there's little bits about him being very uh, vain and supposedly because in this biography, Errol Flynn was extremely vain. And there's just a little scene where he's uh, he's plotting and planning and he just happens to catch himself in the mirror and he, he picks a piece of spinach out from between his teeth so that he looks good while he's plotting and planning. And just, just <laughs> a little a little touch like that by Timothy Dalton is just fantastic. It really is a, a great performance from Timothy Dalton. And like the moments when he's like, okay, I need to go charm. Like I need, I need to be charming right now. You see like a switch flip in his, in his head and in the performance, like something is all of a sudden different when he's choosing to be charming versus when he's, uh, you know, when, when he's like doing the plotting or when he's just you know, letting his anger show. But like, you see all these moments where he's suddenly becomes a different person as he, as it almost has like, he turns around to talk to someone else. Like his face has changed. Yeah, and from what I understand, uh, he did have a. There was a bit of tension on the set between him and Paul Sorvino, and uh, Danny Bilson was telling us a story that uh, that there were there were a lot of issues on how the, uh, the there's a scene where they're at Eddie Valentine's uh, club, the South Seas Club, and uh, uh, Dalton's character Neville Sinclair is ordering Paul Sorvino's character around, and Paul Sorvino felt that he was the top billing guy. And so he should have more lines. And uh, there was a lot of back and forth as to how many uh, Sorvino was actually counting how many lines he had in the scene and how many lines Dalton was in the scene. And uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo were getting phone calls back and forth from the set saying Sorvino needs more lines. And it, it was just, you know, it's just ridiculous <laughs> nonsense, but it was, you know, you gotta, you got these fragile egos out there. And, uh, I, I don't think they talk about that on a director's commentary, but it was just interesting to hear about this, uh, you know, James Bond versus the guy from uh, uh, Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, that, that feels like it fits into some of the behind the scene era of Hollywood that, that you, you glimpse uh, in, in the film, too. All right. Well, before we move on to the long summary of The Rocketeer, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special monthly quick casts in which we break down newly released films or talk about trailers for upcoming films or talk about the TV shows or books that we've been watching and reading. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office game. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss now on to the long summary 
1938, Los Angeles, a pilot, Cliff Secord, and his mechanic slash engineer, pal uh, Peavy, are performing a test run uh, of a propeller pain, uh, plane for a national air show. At the same time, uh, gang- gangsters and the FBI are in a car chase, and gunfire from this chase damages Cliff's plane as he's up in the air and he needs to make an emergency landing. The car chase heads exactly to the landing strip that he's trying to land on, of course. And one of the gangsters hides a package in the plane hangar. Cliff, uh, when he's coming down, he clips his landing gear on a car um, that is on the runway and he crashes his plane. Though it's on fire, he is able to safely get out. The FBI capture a wounded gangster and question him about the package that he had, but uh, this gangster insists it was blown up. The FBI report to Howard Hughes that his device was blown up. The owner of the airfield says uh, that um, Cliff and PV need to pay for the damage uh, that has happened after the crash. Without many options, Cliff says, well, we better earn money doing their old clown act with this broke down plane that they need to fix up. Uh, this would at least be a way for them to start paying back the owner of the airfield. In the hangar, Cliff finds this hidden package from the gangster, and it's a jetpack, and he activates it, and it bashes around for a little while before he's able to turn it off. And then Cliff and uh, PV uh, realize that this is like a rocket pack that's meant to be strapped onto a person. To test the rocket pack, they steal a statue of Charles Lindbergh and strap the rocket onto it, and they see that it successfully could help a man to fly. And Cliff wants to use it at the air show to help earn money. The gangster's boss, Eddie Valentine, goes to the man who hired him, Neville Sinclair, an actor who is very much in the mold of Errol Flynn. Neville Sinclair really wants this rocket pack, and he sends a Frankenstein-esque goon to go uh, pump the wounded gangster for information. It's just really is Frankenstein, basically. Well, uh, it, it, it actually is uh, uh, the character actor Rondo Hatton is, is what the uh, the face is based on, who is a, a, literally a heavy from from a bunch of monster movies in the right. late 40s. Yeah. And, but it, like the groans yeah. feel like they're lifted from the, uh, the James Whale uh, Frankenstein adaptation. Uh, Cliff takes his girlfriend Jenny on a date. She is an extra for Hollywood movies, and she had an audition for a speaking role in a scene with Neville Sinclair at the hospital. Uh, that goon tortures the gangster for information, and uh, the gangster says where he hid the rocket. Now we go to a cafe uh, where, after they've gone to see a movie, Jenny hears that Cliff crashed his plane during his test flight. She says that he should have told her about this, and he says, "Well, I didn't want to worry you." And she says. I should be the first person you tell stuff to. And then she leaves. The next day, Cliff tries to visit Jenny at work and he's walking around as filming is happening and he knocks down a part of the set. Uh, And she's in trouble because of this. And he tries to tell her about the rocket pack that he's found, but she's busy getting fired. Neville Sinclair overheard what Cliff was saying. And so he goes and unfires Jenny and asks her on a date so that he can find out more about this guy who had the rocket pack. At the stunt show, a pal of Cliff's named Malcolm realizes that he needs to get up in the plane in the clown costume to help out his buddy. Uh, and the gangsters are showing up and they take a picture of Jenny, uh, hoping that this is going to help them find the guy with the rocket pack. Cliff uh, realizes that it's Malcolm up in the plane and Malcolm hasn't flown in years and the engine on the plane is dying and there's going to be a bad accident. So Cliff puts on the rocket pack and a special helmet that PV has designed and he flies up to go take control of the plane um, before he does... Uh, launch himself into the air cliff sticks some chewed gum on the rocket pack for luck that's his like go to do this for luck maneuver in a very public display cliff uh is able to land the plane and everyone is now talking about the flying man and the, uh, this guy is dubbed the rocketeer and it's all over the newspapers and the radio news neville sinclair reads this in the newspaper and he's very angry about it the fbi go to talk uh to the man in charge of the air show to see if they can tell him or if he can tell them about where the rocket pack is but they find 
him murdered. Uh, and they see that he had written down an address, which is where PV lives. So uh, now the the goon from the gangsters is going to the house and he's attacking PV and Cliff. Then the FBI arrived too. And with this disruption, PV and Cliff are able to escape with the rocket pack. Neville uh, Sinclair has taken Jenny to a fancy restaurant and he's turning on the charm uh, big time for her. Cliff and PV are at their hangout cafe when gangsters come in looking for a pilot named Cliff Secord. Everyone pretends that he's not there, uh, but then they, uh, the gangsters spot a photo of Jenny on the wall, and one of them says, hey, this is uh, the same as that photo we found earlier. So they call the number on the photo, and um, they're told that Jenny is out at the restaurant with Neville Sinclair. So some of the gangsters go to the restaurant, and they leave others to watch the group that's at the cafe. The group immediately overpowers the two gangsters. <laughs> like just... <laughs> very quickly say no we're not having this uh there is some gunfire in this process though which is gonna be important in a moment because cliff goes and grabs the rocket pack because he wants to go uh warn uh jenny uh but the rocket pack is leaking gas from a bullet hole and pv moves cliff's lucky gum onto the hole as a short-term patch on the rocket and cliff flies off to the restaurant at the restaurant cliff hides his helmet and the rocket and he puts on a bus boy uniform he spills a drink on jenny to get her to stop talking about the rocket pack to neville sinclair and he pulls her into a decorative plant grotto and he tells her i'm the rocketeer but she's been busy all day and hasn't seen a newspaper or heard any news so she has no idea what he is talking about this is this is one of my favorite moments in the movie like uh <laughs> like like now superheroes are like the go-to film genre everyone knows the generic tropes of them uh but this is in the early 90s even then they're playing with some of the the tropes of superhero films like the big reveal of the superhero telling a love interest uh who they really are and she's just clueless about what he's even talking about um cliff tells her that she's in danger and she needs to get out of the restaurant and then he grabs his rocket pack and helmet and he makes a huge mess in the restaurant this is one of the big action sequences while he's trying to escape the the gangsters he eventually escapes by flying up through the skylight just imagine the opposite of batman's entrances in every batman movie um down through the skylight and um Neville Sinclair goes and he catches Jenny and he chloroforms her and she wakes up at his house and he insists he's innocent of any wrongdoing, uh, but she's really not buying this and she knocks him unconscious and then she finds a secret room, a secret Nazi room. And in this room, she finds the plans for the rocket pack and then uh, Neville finds her and she is trapped again. Now, Cliff goes back to the cafe, but everyone's gone. PV's gone. Uh, the phone rings, and it's Eddie Valentine, the gangster. And he's saying that they have his girlfriend, and he needs to bring the rocket to the observatory at 4 a.m. to trade the rocket for Jenny. Uh, just then, the FBI show up, and they take Cliff into custody. They take him to see Howard Hughes, where, uh, and once he's there, they, he finds out this is where PV is. PV's going over blueprints with Howard Hughes. And uh, PV told Hughes about how they got the rocket, and Howard Hughes believes them. And he just says, well, we, we just need the rocket. And Cliff's like, I can't give it to you. And then Hughes shows Cliff a stolen Nazi propaganda film that looks like it was animated by Fleischer, Fleischer Studios in the 1930s. Um, and, the, and, and just a, a little note here while, while we're talking about the Fleischer, uh, it does look like a Fleischer film, but the uh, the actual stills, not the animation portion of the actual stills, were drawn by uh, Dave, Dave Stevens as part of the production. Oh, really? So, yeah, oh, that's so it's fantastic. kind of a full circle. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and in this uh, stolen Nazi propaganda film, they see rocket men taking over the world. Rocket Nazis uh, are, are spreading through other countries. And Cliff says, I'm going to give you back, but I need to use it one last time. The FBI says no, but then Cliff glides out uh, like he punches. A, all right, does he punch him right here? I'm trying to remember. Punches him and jumps out. He, he punches, he punches the same FBI guy. Yeah, he, yeah. He, always, <laughs> he always punches the same FBI guy. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he glides out on a model of the spruce goose and he escapes. And I remember as a kid thinking for some reason that that model of the airplane is really important. I get it now. I did not as a kid, um, but they really spent a, a moment lingering on that model flying into the air and Howard Hughes being pleased that it's going to fly. So now the Rocketeer goes to meet up with Valentine and uh, Neville and Jenny at the observatory. Valentine has lots of gangster thugs as backup. Cliff asks Valentine what it's like to work for a Nazi, which offends Valentine because he says, I'm 100% American. And he finds out that Neville is in fact a Nazi. So he turns on him immediately and all the gangsters pull out their guns. But then Neville has an army of literal Nazis out in the forest who come out. And so now the gangsters have to drop their guns. But then there's a swarm of FBI agents who come out and now it's gangsters and FBI against Nazis as a Nazi Zeppelin is flying over the observatory in LA. In the chaos, Neville flies or takes Jenny up to the Zeppelin, insisting that if they have the girl, they'll get the rocket. Cliff does fly up uh, and has a fight uh, with the, the goon on, on the Zeppelin. Why? Well, I, I, I take a moment to acknowledge he Cliff poses in front of an American flag <laughs> and <laughs> then flies up onto the, the Nazi Zeppelin uh, to, to take down the German bad guys. Um, and in this fight, the pilot gets bro- thrown through a window. I'll just say a lot of the windows on the Zeppelin could have been upgraded in terms of strength. <laughs> because a lot of people are going through, going to be flying through windows at this point. So the pilot's gone. Uh, then uh, Sinclair, uh, Neville Sinclair pulls out a gun on Jenny and uh, Cliff has to slide over the rocket pack. But he moves that piece of gum that was covering uh, the fuel leak. And he, and he slides it over to him. And then there's one more big fist fight, which includes a scene with a uh, like a map compass being picked up and used as a weapon. It's only like 30 seconds of screen time, if that, where you see this compass at all. But it scarred me as a child, I think. The idea of that <laughs> compass being used as a weapon. It is one of the like the visuals that I have in my head of the Rocketeer is the, you know, them using it. It looks like pain. Up. It just looks like straight out pain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um and uh, in this chaos, Jenny also grabs a uh, a flare gun and shoots it inside of a Zeppelin, which if you know the history of Zeppelins, that is going to be problematic. Uh, things are on fire. It's not looking good. Neville straps on the jetpack and he flies out, but it does blow up and he crashes into the land part of a Hollywood of the Hollywood land sign. This is a bit that I feel like I've seen more than once. The Hollywood land, like just the land part of Hollywood land sign getting destroyed in a film. Uh, Cliff and Jenny are able to escape from the burning Zeppelin by jumping onto a loud ladder that howard hughes throws down from an experimental aircraft that he's flying into the rescue on and in a final scene howard hughes gives cliff a new airplane and then jenny shows pv the designs that she stole from neville's nazi room the end a very good a very good uh, review of that wonderful movie it makes me want to go watch it again and i've seen it too many times <laughs> yeah uh so i i think this this film just hits um a lot of the notes of like the family action adventure film that uh, for whatever reason, a lot of studios have moved up to like everything's PG 13. And like the idea of like just a crazy adventure film that the whole family can sit down and watch. uh, It's kind of uh, it's been absent from Hollywood for a few years. It feels like. Yeah. This is one of those movies that, you know, sometimes you see a movie and you thought, Oh, I forgot about that scene. And I forgot about that scene. I really shouldn't recommend it, but this movie you could recommend to anybody and say, this is a great film. You just get some popcorn and sit down and what, you know, put away the next two hours of your life and watch this. Uh, just a beautiful, yeah, it's, it's just, beautiful film. just enjoyable. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know, it's, it's, it's not like, Oh, that one's for kids. It's just, no, that's just, it's a good story. That's well told by uh, people who are very good at their craft. Yeah. With likable characters. I mean, a lot of times you'll see, you'll see films and you're like, I don't like anybody in this movie. I understand where they're going with it, but it's just so 
nihilistic or, or you know lack of for lack of a better term there's no central character that you can get behind and appreciate but all these people are you know the good guys are the good guys and and you can like you can root for them you can hiss and boo at the bad guys it's very 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 straightforward Yes, it is straightforward, but also I think they managed to walk the line of not making uh, Cliff and Jenny particularly like uh, some of the um, the stereotypes or the the stock versions of the characters yeah. they are playing. Like they are, he is the classic, you know, matinee idol good guy, and she is the girlfriend. Like those are roles that they're in, but there is still um, some playfulness and some acknowledgement of those in ways that undercuts just being straight stereotype stereotypical roles so yeah, and, and uh, do, but they, all of them have beautiful character arcs i mean jenny jenny learns to uh you know what she wants out of life and, and so does cliff cliff finds out what's important i mean and and seeing a character seeing characters grow is always uh, a very rewarding feeling watching films if the character doesn't change uh it's it's just like watching a, a, a walk cycle in a in a cartoon they just this is this is the way they're always going to be this is the way that they're going to respond and, and nothing you know, nothing is a surprise. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one thing that I want to talk about is with, with um, let's do Cliff first and then maybe Jenny. What are some of the, uh, the characteristics that we see that, that make them more than just stereotypes? And also what are some of the evolutions that we see for both these characters? What do you think, Jen? Well, I think, you know, Cliff is very driven. He, he's blind to his relationship with Jenny because he has his, his career, his want of being, you know, winning the nationals in his, uh, in his new plane. Uh, that, that's the most important thing in his life. And it takes the loss of Jenny or the, the potential loss of Jenny by seeing her being taken away by Neville and, uh, you know, and also stealing a, a rocket that could change the, uh, change the future <laughs> of, uh, of the United States. But, you know, he's, they got my girl. And he, he says that a couple of times in the movie and it's pretty straightforward. They got his girl. And now he knows what's really important in his life is Jenny is where his world should be revolving around. And uh, even even Jenny has that uh, situation where she thinks that the most important thing is getting a speaking role, being uh, being made Marion in the, the Robin Hood, uh, Robin Hood compatible movie they're making. So, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all these careers uh, don't really matter to them. What's most important is their relationships with each other. And yeah, I think PV is the uh, the mentor there who tells you know Cliff, if you don't if you don't you know, straighten up and fly right, you're not going to, you're not going to get the girl and you're going to really need to readjust your, uh, your priorities. So that's a, that's a very important thing. And there's, there's so many little elements that I enjoy in this film. Um, I like, uh, this is a, this is a dumb little thing, but Cliff's superstition about, uh, flying a plane with uh, chewing gum, it, the Beeman's chewing gum, the choice of aviators everywhere from him to Chuck Yeager. It's always known as, as an aviator gum. So he, he has to, he has to put a piece of chewing gum on everything he flies. The GB has it, uh, and now the X3. And that later becomes a key plot point in that uh, it saved his neck when it was time to fly and save Jenny. And it also uh, won the day for him by by taking the gum off and giving a, giving Neville a now bad luck rocket pack. So yeah. uh, little things like that. And, you know, it, it just shows – it shows the genius, the brilliance of uh, of Danny Bilson and, and the late Paul DeMeo for uh, for coming up with these clever little items that you can. It, they're almost like breadcrumbs that are dropped through the film, and you follow the breadcrumbs, and uh, and they they carry you through the plot without being obvious, but uh, it's just a little bit of cleverness that that you can say, hey, that that's a smart idea. 
Yeah, like the the chewing gum, it, I mean, in some ways it's like Chekhov's gun. Well, this is going to be a major plot point, so we've got to show it earlier. But the way it gets shown earlier, you feel like they're revealing character about Cliff. They're not saying, oh, this is this is going to be a key plot element. You just think you've learned a little about his superstitions, uh, which is the best way for me to do Chekhov's gun. Sometimes you see a Chekhov's gun and it's like, oh, there was a close up on that random object. This is going to be a major thing. Uh, but if they if they can do uh that introduction in a way where you think it's already served his purpose you know its purpose and then it pays off even more later i think that's uh some of the best ways to introduce these uh you know these objects that are going to be key to plots yeah and and they do solve a lot of plot problems uh one of the things that we see early in the film besides the uh the gum on the back of his plane is he always carries a little wallet photo of jenny and he tucks it in his instrument panel on the plane he kisses his thumb and puts his thumb against jenny's face for for luck, another another superstition. That picture later winds up with uh, Eddie Valentine and his gangster crew, so that they can help. That 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 little bit of evidence helps them find out who Jenny is and where they can where they can track her down. So, you know, all these little pieces that get used through the whole film, like you said, Chekhov's gun. It's such a beautiful narrative strategy of of imparting information without they're they're showing you but not telling you what you know why mm-hmm. the plot is the way it is. Yeah. And then those things that, again, like, like you can feel like, the, oh, this this is here to show us who his girlfriend is. This is here to show, show us that he has a romantic side. This is here to show us that he has a superstitious side. They be, you know, they become, um, you know, elements that that drive the plot. Yeah. Another another thing is that you can also see the mastery of the 30s screwball comedy in this movie, uh, how Joe Johnson and uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. Uh, come across, you know, this, this merger of uh, of the director's view and the screenwriter's view of what the 30s were like. They put in a lot of screwball comedy uh, actions. Uh, my favorite scene where uh, 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 the rocketeer is posing as a waiter so he could fi- fit in at this fancy nightclub <laughs> that uh, Jenny is out with this movie star. And uh, he's idly uh, stirring a bowl of soup while talking to them, saying that a uh, that the, the soup was sent over by a fan. It's like, really? I don't think, a... <laughs> look, there's Clark Gable. Let me get him a bowl of soup. Uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't fly, but it's just, uh, he, he, he awkwardly stirs the soup while uh, Neville is trying to woo uh, Jenny. And finally Neville just gets very upset saying, what, what are you doing here? Why are you, <laughs> why are you bothering me with this? It's just a, a cute moment. And it really does recall the, uh, uh, the craziest is, you know, it, it, it's up there with a Philadelphia story or you can't take it with you. Those kind of screwball comedies of the thirties. Yeah, I, definitely. I want to, I want to jump in and, and mention, cause Joseph was talking about um, a few minutes ago, you know, what are some of these characteristics that really subvert the classic stereotypes and, and archetypes that we have in this movie. And I feel like with Cliff, he seems like he's out of place almost everywhere. Like yeah. he, he just like, he doesn't fit at the, at the restaurant. He doesn't fit when he's at the set at the movie set. He barely fits in at the, um, at the, the airport. Yeah. He's a, he's a bumbler and he's not a people person. He just hits you as his favorite thing. If he could spend all of his time, he would be at the hangar, uh, screwing in, uh, bolts on his, uh, on his GB and making sure that it was, you know, all the, all the wires were tight, but people yeah. confuse him. Yeah, even the other people at the hangar, he like he still doesn't quite fit in. Yeah, and, and he's and the funny thing is he's the most outgoing of any of the, the guys at the hangar. <laughs> they just kind of <laughs> sit in the background. But it, it, it the, the great thing about that is even though they're all a bit introverted on things, we see that 
put to good use when uh, there's a there's a scene where the uh, the crew at the at the uh, at the Bulldog Cafe, all the all the aviators who work with Cliff are being held hostage by Eddie Valentine's gangsters. And it's a beautiful scene that uh, that Joe Johnson directed, and and you can tell he he had a hand in the editing. Where these guys have worked each, with each other for years, and they know each other by a thought or a glance. And there's just a scene where um, the Rocketeer looks at the other two guys, Goose and Malcolm, and they just uh, nod their heads, and they each know who they're going to attack when they get into this big fist fight with the uh, with Valentine's boys. And it's just a beautiful scene. We've seen it in other films. Um, it, it has a Howard Hawks uh, feel to it. It has uh, very much, uh, it, it reminds me of, if you've ever seen uh, one of uh, Bogart's uh, rare comedies, uh, All Through the Night. It's a lot like the movie All Through the Night, where it's just all, it, all these guys work as a team and they can outwit Valentine's crew in, in the tight space of, uh, of the Bulldog Cafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and within that, the, the cafe scene, I was impressed with how... Um, the the relationships felt earned enough that when these gangsters come in and wave a gun around and say which one of you is cliff uh no one like like there's no guy that's looking nervously and starting to sweat and is going to crack under this like they all just they're like as one they all say well we're not we're not telling you that yeah uh, and, and it feels it doesn't feel like that's um untrue to the setting that we've been we've been shown in that cafe no and, and even uh, millie who uh, runs the cafe played by a uh, beloved character actress margo martindale uh she uh she's one of the crew and it will not budge an inch to tell them what's what's going on even after they start busting up her joint yeah, it's not it's not just threatening with guns. They start shooting the gun in the place and pointing yeah. it at people and and threatening to uh to torture uh, PV, right? And and uh it it still doesn't feel like any of these guys is about to crack and give up Cliff. Yeah. Yeah, they're uh, they're a tough a tough crew and they've been I don't know if the, not 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 at this level, but they've been in scrapes before and they each trust each other to do the right thing, which is why they why they succeed. And it's just a, it's just a nice feeling. You're you're watching it and you think this is turning into a Popeye cartoon all of a sudden and gosh, this it's great. So, I really want to yeah, watch the movie uh, again now. Just just talking about this again. <laughs> Well, with things that you were you were mentioning how like it feels evocative of all these other things i want to say that the behind the scenes filming stuff felt like uh some singing in the rain uh spoofing of 1930s and 40s uh cinema and then also uh the way some of the uh the gangsters particularly the big bad but it made me think of like dick tracy uh yeah you know the uh uh, the, the baddies who have like these physical features that just stand out and and are unmistakable to you yeah, and and that movie would come out the next year, also by Disney. So unfortunately, they mm-hmm. had two uh, two swings and a miss in a row. Um, but yeah, it it, it is uh, it, it the the idea about Hollywood, where um, uh, you know they uh, that you're up one minute and down the next, and and the fact that uh, the director, you know, Jenny announces that the director really likes her, uh, followed right behind her is the, uh, the the assistant director coming up with a pink slip to hand her to tell her that she's been fired. It's just, it's a gorgeous, you know, little take on Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess, I guess that's a good transition. Let's talk about Jenny for a little bit. Cause I think she's also an interesting character because uh, this is a role that uh, very often becomes a damsel in distress. And I don't think she falls into that uh, role entirely. Now, obviously she is, captured and becomes a motivation for the hero to you know into the the final act where he's like he, he needs to go rescue the girl that is part of it but um often with damsels in distress 
uh, they're, they, uh, they become very helpless and there's a lot of screaming that gets involved. I don't think she really screams ever. Um, in there's, this one. There's, I think when she, when she gets attacked by Lothar in, in, mm. in the scene in the, uh, in the Nazi spy room, um, right. there's one scream, but we can't even attribute it to her because it goes, everything goes dark. So, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, I, I agree that she's, she's not a damsel in distress. I mean, she uses her acting skills to one up uh, Neville by, uh, conking him on the head with a, with a vase. And uh, and he she plays on his narcissism that he's in love with himself and she she knows that everything that he says to her is a quote from one of his movies. So <laughs> the fact that she's seen all of his films is uh, it, it helps her to no end. And she's just yeah not, she sees uh, through him immediately. Yeah. Well, not immediately. Like boy, once she knows that he's not who I thought he was, she suddenly sees every trick that he's playing. Like yeah, and uh, what she knows to be on the lookout for it, she is savvy enough to catch them all. She uh, she lures him in with a you know a temptation of putting on a negligee, but as she, as she after she conks him on the head, she said, "I I finally played a role with uh, Neville Sinclair." And as an exclamation, she zips up the side of her uh, her evening gown to you know, put things back in place <laughs> very there. assertively. Uh, right? <laughs> end scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, Joseph, I think your word "savvy" is like one of the perfect descriptors for her throughout this movie because you get like. In, in all of their interactions together, her her and Cliff, you always kind of come out of that and being like, ah, oh, Cliff, you dummy. Like, why don't you get it? And she always seems to get it, even if she's maybe a little harsh sometimes. But she like she knows that he's a good guy. And that he cares about her. She just wants him to recognize that he's a good guy and that he cares about her that much. <laughs> well, even like their, their initial fight in, in the cafe, which is, I think is a very well written scene for... Um, Two characters who have their own motivations and you see what they are and you understand them, but it puts them at odds. So he wants to protect her and not have her scared um, when he's out flying because he loves flying. He's going to be out flying and the idea of him crashing would be a scary thing. And so he doesn't want to frighten her by revealing how close he came to a really bad crash and accident uh, today. And her argument that I'm the one you tell (laughs) is also completely valid like so so you see that sometimes when you uh when characters are written for fights it feels like one of them is the good guy one of them is the bad guy in this one i think they do a good job of presenting two honest uh cases for um for what brings them to the point they're at uh that understandably has them arguing here yeah Mm -hmm. and it 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 shows how they view the world i mean to cliff his job is everything and to Jenny, her job is everything. So the idea, the idea that um, that she should, you know, subsume, subsume her her career so that she can watch uh, Cliff fly an airplane while she sits there and worries about him crashing, uh, it, it's ridiculous to her, but necessary to Cliff. And it's like, why can't you be here like everybody else is for for my job? And and he doesn't quite understand that her job to her is just as important as his uh, flying airplanes is to him. Yeah. So after uh, he says the or she says that, like, I'm the one you tell stuff to, he counters with, I wouldn't have to tell you if you were out here watching. Yeah. Um, which <laughs> need to keep an argument going. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and then uh, also like playing in with uh, some of Cliff's like affable cluelessness after she she leaves uh, is who's it? This? Someone mi- says, we'll go after mi- Millie, Millie, Millie. <laughs> Millie. Yeah. Yeah. Go after you dope. So. <laughs> <laughs> and and everybody, you know, it's the thing is everybody's been in a in a really dumb uh, debate like that, and you realize oh, I, I said a stupid thing, and uh, 
the the idea is all the other characters have been in similar situations and they know what comes next and this is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Um, and just need somebody to give him his line. <laughs> go, go chase after her. Yeah. I think by the end of the film, it really feels like, even though, I mean, for a lot of the film, that fight is kind of hovering over them. But by the end of the film, it seems like their experiences have helped them resolve that. Yeah. Yeah. I think their priorities have completely changed by the time we get to the end. Uh, Cliff understands Jenny's, Jenny wants to be part of the movie world. And it, to him, the, mo- the most important thing has always been flying and being the fastest and doing, you know, doing the exciting stuff. Uh, but there's a there's a line at the end of the movie. Um, I hope people are watching this movie and have seen it because it was spoiling. <laughs> but um, there's a line where uh, Howard Hughes asks, uh, asks Cliff, what was it like strapping that thing on and, and flying like a bat out of hell? And he said, well, I guess it's the closest I'll ever get to heaven, Mr. Hughes. And then he looks at Jenny and says, and turns back to Hughes and said, well, maybe not. And, you know, it, it, that, that kind of sums up the entirety of Cliff's character arc, that he's gone from understanding what's important in his life. And the, the idea, the most important thing in his life is the love of Jenny Blake. And uh, just because he gets the girl and a new plane and, you know, the chance for uh, the rocket pack x3 mark ii uh, in future movies that were never made it's beside the point but it's you know he he's won the girl and that's the most important part of the story um are there any other uh moments of the film that particularly stand out to you where it's like okay that that is a nice bit of memorable writing or performance yeah i i'd say that uh, one of the one of the things and it's kind of it's it filters through the entire film is one of the best things in any movie is the idea that the movie is that there's more going on in the world that the movie is set in than what we're just seeing on the screen. And every one of these characters has a, has a backstory, has a very involved backstory of how they all met and where things happened with each other. Uh, Malcolm, the ex world war one fighter, who's, who would constantly sit in the, the bulldog cafe and tell uh, Millie's daughter, about how uh, he fought the Red Baron one time. And and Peavy talking about how he hasn't had a date since 1932 and the, the last girl that he went out with was Flora Maxwell and there wasn't any point dating anybody else after her. So, you know, it's like there's a whole story, there's a whole movie in that. You'd want to find out about what did Peavy do in his back backstory. Or Jenny meeting Jenny meeting uh, Cliff. Cliff was uh, dusting crops uh, at her parents' uh, Orange Grove in Redlands. That You know, she has a whole childhood uh, that that we don't know about, but we hear little bits and pieces. That's why she has her her charm bracelet. And there's a bunch of little charms hanging off of it, including the oranges, uh, little silver oranges that Cliff gave her in memory of the time they first met at her parents' orange grove. So we see all these things, and we know that the universe is a lot bigger than the movie that we're watching, and that fleshes out all the characters, the protagonists and the villains. That we know other things are going on. Everything from uh, knowing that the nationals are coming up to the idea that uh, Eddie Valentine is going to have to go back and rebuild his uh, wrecked South Seas club that is currently on fire and full of bullet holes. So, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I just love I just love a bigger world in my movies, and this does a really great job capturing that bigger world. Yeah, I think it does really well, and um, also like that larger world um of, of every character does give us some of those great moments like the, the gangsters announcing well we're not working for nazis <laughs> like we're yeah 
<laughs> that that is a bridge too far. I'm a criminal, but I'm an American criminal. Yeah, that that that's definitely a scene that you hear cheers when you're in a theater. He goes, "I I may be a crook, but I, I'm an honest crook. I, and I'm 100 percent American." And just and there's there's a little scene uh, built into that where all of Eddie's gangsters turn on uh, Neville's crew and they turn to a uh, Lothar and the, the guy points the machine gun at him and said, relax, Frankenstein, you're not bulletproof. It's just a, you know, <laughs> yeah, go get him. And then when, when we have the fights between the uh, Sturmbach tail and the, the stormtroopers, the, the Nazis that have you know, come down on ropes from the, from the Zeppelin <laughs> and are fighting it out in front of Griffith Observatory with the FBI, we see a beautiful scene with Eddie Valentine and uh, one of the FBI agents, and they're both holding machine guns, shooting back at the Nazis. And they look at each other just for a moment like, hey, we're on the same side. And then they go back to shooting the Nazis. It's just, you know, you, you just you really just want to fist pump while you're while you're watching this movie. It's like, this is great. I love this film. So uh, it, it's just it's so it's so rewatchable. That's that's a very enjoyable part of this film. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, there's. um I think you end up af- after watching the film, you just kind of say like all of the elements of tone and design and performance uh, and plot, like all come together to make something that just works particularly well. And I do want to just one more time shout, shout out the, the design of the Rocketeer is pretty perfect. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, the, the, the pilot's jacket and pants and the, the helmet, like it all just comes together. The rocket pack, like it, it's this glorious 1930s art deco masterpiece that feels like it should be more iconic than it is. I think it is known, but I, I one reason I hope that we do get more chapters in a Rocketeer film franchise is I just feel like that should be one of the looks that everyone just just looks at and says, oh, I know that piece of pop culture. And yeah, every, everybody should have a rocket, a rocket. And, and that, the funny thing is, is that the, the, the rocket pack was changed because it didn't look good enough in uh, Dave Stevens' original comic book. It was just this little purple jeweled thing. But <laughs> this thing looks like you're strapping a, a B-29 bomber onto your back and you're ready to roll when, when, when that thing is on. And, and it really, like, it looks like it came out of the pulps and, and the early comic books in the 30s. Yeah. Like it looks like it's just drawn straight from there and and they adapted it instead of kind of making it from whole cloth in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that, that's always bothered me in uh, when you watch films in the 70s or, uh, and they're they're set in they're set in the 30s and 40s, but they all have 70s haircuts. You know, you'll see them with Dorothy Hamill haircuts and and Farrah uh, cuts. And it's like this isn't what it looked like back then. But these people have the haircuts, the uh the the clothing the tailoring and the the snappy peppy uh 30s scribble comedy banter so it's uh it, it feels i mean there's so many little things that do it i mean the the, the little um the pseudo cameos that they have of of uh, wc fields and, and clark gable wandering around at the south seas club you feel like oh they could be friends with neville sinclair and they probably go over to each other's houses and uh, play golf together so it's it's just you feel very immersed in 1938 there it doesn't feel like 1990 playing 1938. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we noted that's something that Joe Johnston, uh, you know, that, that led, led to him uh, being chosen to do one of the, like the core members of the Avengers, like telling, telling the first story, one of the core members of what is now one of the biggest franchises uh, in the world. Um, And, you know, hopefully this will become a franchise again someday too. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, Jim, do you have any final thoughts that you want to offer on The Rocketeer? 
I would recommend, this is one of those films that, uh, you know, even like movies like Star Wars or um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you really can't watch them with, with little kids. And I, I, I have, I have grandchildren and I, I ponder when, when I'm going to show them Star Wars and things. they're, you know, like they're five years old and stuff. I, I don't think they're ready yet, but I think I could show them the Rocketeer and they would get into it. So it, it's a great movie. I think as a family, you can sit down and watch this with kids and get them excited about, you know, this is, this is what flying is like. And this is, you know, here's action and adventure. And it, it, it's a story that's simple enough that you can say good guys versus bad guys and explain, Oh, this guy's a bad guy. This guy's a good guy. And you get to the end and you cheer for the heroes. And it just, it, it's such a comfortable popcorn movie. I, I like being able to be able to recommend it to everybody. I know that's, that's my favorite part of the Rocketeer. All and right. meeting Billy Campbell too, of course. So. <laughs> that was one of the unexpected perks of doing a podcast about the, the Rocketeer True. that you had, right? <laughs> Very exciting. Um, I think that's going to wrap up our discussion of the Rocketeer. But Jim, every time we have a first-time guest on the protagonist podcast, we ask a question. Because our podcast is about great characters and great stories, we say, uh, if you could have a dinner party with three to five fictional characters, who would you want to hang out with for an evening? Uh, well, the uh, four that I came up with, two uh, two are husband and wife. I would want to hang out with uh, Al Stevenson and his wife from uh, the best years of our lives. Uh, that was Frederick March and Myrna Loy. And uh, Al Stevenson seems like if you've ever seen the best years of our lives, uh, Al is a returning uh, soldier who's a he's a bank manager. And uh, he gets a little bit tipsy at uh, at a bank uh party where he's supposed to give a speech and uh, he's just a little bit too gregarious for his wife who keeps marking down with a with a fork how many drinks he's had and i think uh, just the interplay of that i would love to, love to have an al stevenson at my party uh, second one i'd love to have would be a uh, gloves donovan who is uh, humphrey bogart in uh, i think a, a movie that we mentioned before uh, all through the night gloves donovan is a man about town gambler Kind of an Eddie Valentine, but we never get the feeling that he's totally a gangster. He has a crew with him composed of people like uh, uh, William Demarest. And uh, it, it, he's uh, he's a funny guy and he has a certain way of doing things. He only eats a certain type of cheesecake. He only drinks a certain kind of coffee. <laughs> he knows everybody in town and he's really good to his mom. So I would like to hear Gloves Donovan in a social situation just to, just to hear some of his stories. Um, the other one is... Uh, uh, I would, this is a complete uh, change is uh, a fellow Dr. Jeremy Stone played by Arthur Hill in the 1971 Michael Crichton movie, the Andromeda strain. And uh, oh, okay. Jeremy Stone, I don't, it, it, uh, I know maybe a lot of people haven't seen this movie, but it's a great, it's a Robert Wise movie. And uh, mm -hmm. it was Michael Crichton's first big uh, screenplay. And uh, Dr. Jeremy Stone in this movie convince the government that uh, alien life forms uh, would probably arrive on Earth in the form of microbes. And in order to uh, uh, study them, they needed to set up like a lunar receiving laboratory in the middle of the Arizona desert. And uh, just in case there was anything dangerous about the microbes, uh, the site would have to be equipped with a nuclear device that would destroy the place and everybody inside it just to make sure the microbes wouldn't uh, escape. And... Uh, I'd like to talk with Dr. Stone to see what his uh, thoughts are on alien uh, life forms and uh, how he can, how he managed to convince the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and the con Congress to uh, put a nuclear bomb 
uh, under his control. So <laughs> it might make uh, Al Stevenson and his wife a little bit astonished because they just got through uh, World War II and they know what atomic yeah. bombs are like. So, um, and I don't know how Gloves Donovan would feel about this guy sitting next to him that has access to an atomic weapon. But uh, I think that would that would make for a very nervous and uh, fascinating dinner conversation. Yeah, it's, a, it's an eclectic group you have chosen, and it sounds like we we may need to have you back on to come talk about some of these characters <laughs> in the future. Awesome, I'd uh, love to do it. And th- thank you so much for having me on. This has re- really been a, a nice uh, a nice chance to look at a movie as a whole instead of getting in with the microscope. I can take in the uh, the panoramic vision of uh, of one of my favorite films. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 19 from way back when we had another Movie by Minute uh, guest. We had Alex Robinson from Star Wars Minute on to talk about Princess Leia and Star Wars, which is another film very much inspired by 1930s. Uh, storytelling and pop culture or episode number 142 we also had guests from uh, the indiana jones minute on to talk about indiana jones from indiana jones and the last crusade I think we had pete from indiana jones minute on uh, for that one and another classic film that is inspired by the storytelling of the 1930s and 40s you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we're also on twitter you can follow at protagonist pod or at jay dorowski and our producer andrew is at dis minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast and jim uh if our listeners enjoyed your work, where where could they go find more of uh, of your your work? Oh, well, you can check us out. As we discussed previously, the uh, Rocketeer Minute is at rocketeerminute.com. Uh, currently working on uh, Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, so you can go to apollo13minute.com. Some previous uh, shows include uh, Airport, the 1970 uh, Russ Hunter film, uh, not airplane, but air, airport with uh, Burt Lancaster and Dean Martin. Uh, that's at airportminute.com. Uh, I've also produced uh, several Movies by Minutes uh, uh, group uh, sessions by the Movies by Minutes people, including uh, the Die Hard Minute at dieHardMinute.com and Into the Night, uh, John Landis's 1985 comedy thriller at uh, nightminute.com. So join any anywhere out there uh, and pick up and start listening. There's lots of lots of stuff to talk about on those films. All right. Well, thank you again, Jim. And thank you again, listeners. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Three, two, one, now, and do it on the now. Okay. Three, two, one, now. I totally nailed it. Yes. Right on the now. I'm sure you did. (laughs)